Tav. Right back to the cross. The last letter in their alphabet. That's it. The cross. My cry came before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your law sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your command. Good deal. Okay, let's go quickly to, uh, that's Tav, that's uh, the cross, mm-hmm. and let's see here. Today, what is it today? It's the 5th? It's the 5th of April. So here we go. This uh, It's the story of an empty tomb, which actually, you know, these don't really follow the date every year. It's just an annual thing. So um, one year it might be on one day, yeah, Easter. And, okay, but uh, let's see, early on Sunday morning, April 5th, A.D. 33, and actually, they can't know that it was April 5th, A.D. 33, because there's 11 days missing uh, between the Gregorian and Julian calendars, et cetera, et cetera. So they're, they're, they can never be 100% certain of these things. But um, it, we can make good guesses. But when somebody is adamant about saying, yeah, dogmatic about something, they're probably not correct. Um, anyway, so uh, and it was A.D. 32. Okay, it wasn't A.D. 33. We'll get into that some other time. But uh uh, Mary Magdalene and several other women went to Jesus' tomb. To their great surprise, they found that the stone cover covering the entrance had been rolled aside. They entered the tomb, but there was nobody, only the linen wrappings with the cloth that had covered Jesus' head folded up and laying to the side. They could not fathom what had happened to Jesus' body. Then suddenly two angels appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed down before them. The angels asked, why are you looking in the tomb for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He has risen from the dead. Don't you remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again the third day? Then they remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back to tell his disciples what had happened. But their story sounded so preposterous, the disciples didn't believe it. However, Peter and John ran to the tomb to see for themselves. They saw the empty linen grave grave clothes and went back, wondering what had happened. The same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles out of Jerusalem. Suddenly, Jesus himself came along and joined them. But they didn't realize who he was because God kept them from recognizing him. They told him how Jesus' body was missing from his tomb. Then Jesus said to them, you are such foolish people. You find it so hard to believe that all the prophets wrote in the scriptures wasn't it clearly predicted by the prophets that the messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his time of glory then jesus quoted passages from moses and all the prophets explaining what all the scripture said about himself then suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized jesus and at that moment he disappeared within the hour they were on their way back to jerusalem where the 11 disciples and the other followers of jesus were gathered when they arrived, they were greeted with the report, the Lord is re- really risen. He appeared to Peter. Then the two from Emmaus told their story. As they spoke, Jesus was suddenly standing there among them. He said, peace be with you. 
But the whole group was terribly frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why do you doubt who I am? Look at my hands, look at my feet. You see, you can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost or a spirit. Kind of blows away the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses theory, which says that he was raised a spirit being, right? He's, uh, I don't know how they can continue to teach that after reading it, but whatever. Um, so, uh, and touch me, make sure that I'm not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see that I do. As he spoke, he held out his hands for them to see, and he showed them his feet. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me by Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must come true. Then he opened their minds to understand these many scriptures, and he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah must suffer and die and rise again from the dead on the third day. With my authority, take this message of repentance to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There's forgiveness of sins for all who turn to me. You are witnesses of all of these things. Reflection, do you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Yeah. Okay, good job. If you don't, how do you explain the growth of Christianity stemming from the disciples' claim that they had seen the risen Christ and their willingness to die for their convictions? 1 Corinthians 15, he was raised from the dead on the third day he was seen by Peter and then by the 12 apostles. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Great stuff there. Charlie. Yes. Did you see uh, uh, Sanders, uh, Sarah Sanders? She read the story of the resurrection. Is that right? These kids. It's on YouTube. Oh, good. You send me that link or send me a reminder and I'll look for it. Thank you. Wow, I did not see that. Um, okay, I got to, somebody sent me an email today. Lots of prayer requests this week, but I'm just going to stick with this one and then everybody else God knows about. But it's just this, you need lots of prayers for my neighbors, 28-year-old son, Brandon Graves. Brandon's been sick since born. He goes to Cleveland Clinic next Monday morning, taking out 85 to 90 percent of his stomach all of his large intestines and his back end he they're going to 3d print a new back end for him his mom Joni has been fighting cancer now for two years whole mess doing a number on bob dad he's 65 himself with bad heart and diabetes makes me selfish when i complain about my ouches have three neighbors in trouble with sickness Second, Tony, 82, retired preacher, what a gas. Hurting, Lucy, 65, his lovely wife taking care of him. Her white blood count, almost not there. And then third, Naomi, William's wife, another retired preacher. I can't get away with anything. Too many preachers, he says. Her diabetes so bad now, home health care here every few days. So he's got three friends that he asked for prayer about on one day. I thought we'd just highlight that and pray for everybody else. Heavenly Father, we certainly do lift up these names that were brought before you and before the uh, people here, and we would pray that you would help them through their times of stress and distress and certainly all of the operations and troubles that are coming in their lives. And Lord, you know all of the other prayer requests that are lifted up to you through individuals or through emails or however we communicate, telephone calls, you know these things, Lord. We've got people that are traveling, people that are uh, having financial troubles and the list goes on and on so Lord I would ask that you would just be with these people help them through their times of trouble and Lord we just uh, commit this service to you this Bible study help us to open your word and handle it properly and I would ask that you would prompt these 
individuals, whether online or right here in this church, that they would check out what they hear to make sure that I'm not just uh, saying something that they assimilate without actually verifying whether it's correct or not. And we love you, Lord. You are so good to us. Thank you for what this past Sunday signifies in our lives. And may we carry this with us daily through the year ahead. And Lord, we do carry it in our hearts. And we're so thankful for the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ our Lord. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, I might as well show you this. This is a bandana. It looks like a sock. Never seen anything like it. This is how they wear them in the Philippines. Now it makes it so easy. Look at this. You just put it on. And it fits anybody, even a fat head like me, because it's kind of stringy. Like it just looks like a bandana, doesn't it? But it, it, see, yeah. I mean, it's just it's just a sock over your head. Elfin. Elfin. Yeah. Anyway, I like this. It's comfortable. It looks. It covers up my bald head, and it keeps me looking like a pirate. But I don't have to tie. When I tie one of these things, I always get my hair stuck in it, and then I, you know. Oh, this no is this is so convenient. No, there's no answer for it. Not what you're talking about. Um, just so everybody knows here, I, we're passing around a petition for everybody in the church to sign. Don't leave today without signing it, please. It's for the bar thing. Yeah, we've got it here. Pass it around. If you haven't signed it, please sign it before you go, and then we'll do it again on Sunday. And that will be presented with all of the people in this community that have also signed it. And we're going to get more as well. I will say, as I, I hate to take up Bible study time for this, but we have a petition here that needs to be taken around Gulfgate Drive. Uh, one guy has done a Gateway. We're going to get, I'm sorry, Superior Word, Superior Avenue. Somebody's going to get Gateway. But we need somebody, if you have time, to walk up and down Gulfgate Drive and have them sign this petition. If you do, I would appreciate it. If you don't, I'm going to do it. But it needs to be done. And then we also have, um, later, we need to get the Gulfgate Apartments. But that is secondary to getting the store. So if somebody wants to do this, let how me know. Been, uh, how has it been? Received on this bar. street, almost everybody signed it. Wow. Even the bars have signed it. So wow. uh, if, if we do not get these signatures, we do not get credit for the signatures we don't get. So we're in Romans 10, 16. And let me see if we want to go back a couple. So let me get there really quickly. And, uh, oh, before we get into that, I uh, was going to read you once a week. the. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're on number three, I think. Yes, uh, this is a Chicago Statement of Faith, article number three. We affirm that the written word in its entirety is revelation given by God. We deny, this is their denial, we deny that the Bible is merely a witness to revelation or only becomes revelation in encounter or depends on the responses of men for its validity. In other words, you can say that the Bible uh, contains the word of God. Okay, that's some people will say that the Bible contains the Word of God. Guess what? You have to pick out where it is because it's not the Word of God. It just contains it. Or you can say that the Bible becomes the Word of God. When I read it, it becomes the Word of God to me, but it will become the Word of God to somebody else separately. And this is what people teach in churches, in especially Methodist churches. They'll say things like this. So it either contains the Word of God or it becomes the Word of God, or you have a third option, it is the Word of God. And that's what they're affirming. We affirm that the written Word in its entirety is revelation given by God. We deny that the Bible is merely a witness to revelations, or only becomes revelation in encounter, or depends on the responses of men for its validity. So that's an important point. Churches teach otherwise, and they are insane. If you can pick and choose what is and is not the Word of God, then you do not have the Word of God. We'll talk about that in Sunday's sermon as well. Okay, so Romans 10, verse 16, but hang on one sec. 
Go back to 14 and just start 14. there. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 16. But not all of the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Okay, mine's a little different. I'm going to read it. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. And it is speaking of Israel because he's citing Isaiah. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So here's my thoughts on it. Paul began chapter 10 with his comments concerning Israel and salvation. That was verses 1 through 4. They have a zeal for God, okay? Everybody, nobody can deny that they have a zeal for God, but so do Muslims, don't they? They go out and blow themselves up. It's just not proper knowledge. They are lacking the proper knowledge of God, and so they do that. Buddhists do this, Hindus do that, and Jews do that. But they do not have the proper knowledge of God. How do we know that's true? Because Paul, who was under that category, realized it, and he says it right here, okay? They do not have the proper knowledge. They pursued the law as a means to an end, but Christ is the end point, purpose, and fulfillment of the law. Now, we're going to talk about this in Sunday's sermon. I'm going to bring it up right now so that you understand. Israel has been granted something to finish their time under the law. What is it? And where, where do you find that? Tribulation. No. Tribulation. No. The tribulation period, that's correct. But where is that? Where is it recorded? Oh, Daniel or... Uh, uh, Daniel what? Uh, sorry. Daniel, okay, I'll give you a hint. It's uh, after 8 and before 10. Okay? Uh, let me see. Daniel 12. Daniel, you're close. Okay, it's Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. I'm going to take you there very quickly, and we will talk about this in this sermon Sunday. Now, where is the book of Leviticus? In the Old Testament or the New? I'm going to be completely in Leviticus 26, 40 through 46 this weekend, and I'm going to show you why replacement theology is incorrect from those verses. It is irrefutable. You don't need a, a doctoral dis, uh, degree or to do a dissertation on it or anything like that to understand what I'm going to give you on Saturday. If you have somebody that is stuck in Reformed theology and they want to know why they are wrong, don't argue from the New Testament because they're reading the exact same verses that you are, and they're coming to a completely different conclusion. They have not gone back to the base and looked at Leviticus 26. It's going to be a really important sermon for people to understand that issue. But here in Daniel 9, it says in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. 70 weeks of years. That means 490 years for your people and your holy city. Who is your people? Who is he speaking to? Daniel, who, Jews, and your holy city is Jerusalem. Okay, so we know that. 490 years to finish transgression, make an end of sins, make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, three bad things, three good things, and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25, know therefore and understand, so it's something that you can know and you can understand, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven and 62 is 69, 69 which is how many years out of 490? Take off seven, you come out to? 420. 483. Now, I've got a lot of different answers, but it's 483. Okay, so going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, from 
the time of that edict until Messiah the Prince, it will be, um, where was I? Seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. That pinpoints which command because there are several commands. You've got Cyrus, you've got Atarxerxes, etc. Okay, it's from 445 BC, the command of Atarxerxes because they're already uh, working on it, but um, it says there the street shall be built again and the wall. When was the wall built? In Ezra or Nehemiah? Nehemiah? Nehemiah, thank you. So we know when he's talking about and the wall even in troublesome times. Now, of course, the people that don't support, uh, that are replacement theologians that don't support Israel of today, they will say that there was a wall, that it was destroyed, and Nehemiah came to build another wall. That's not in the Bible, by the way, but that's what they say. So, verse 26, and the 62 weeks, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Okay, you wonder why it says 62 weeks and seven instead of saying just 69. Okay, the reason why is because there is something called the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. It's called the... Grace. The what? Silent. Well, yes, silent, but it's called the intertestamental period. Okay, and if you take that back to Malachi 430 years before uh, the coming of Christ, there you go. That's why you have that division there. It's saying that that's why it divides it up that way. Um, that's my commentary. I don't know anybody else that, that says that, but it's obvious if you look at it. So um, you have um, not for himself, the people, oh, and after the 62 weeks, mean, which means after the seven and the 62 or a total of 69, okay, Messiah shall be cut off. That means he's going to die. We know that right from Daniel, but not for himself. He's going to die for the sins of the world and the people of the prince who is to come. A very odd way of saying it, the people of the prince who is to come. Well, who is the people that destroyed Jerusalem? Rome. Rome, okay, but the prince isn't coming at that time. He's coming at a later time. That's why it's worded the way it is. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city. So we know it's the Romans. The prince to come will be a Roman. He'll be from the revived Roman Empire. Whether he's actually Roman or not, we don't know, but it's probably likely. Anyway, it's future. I'm not going to argue with people over it, but he will be from the Roman Empire. Okay, people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That was A.D. 70. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Verse 27, then he, is it the Antichrist or is it Christ? It all depends on what you want to believe. If you want to believe that all of prophecy is fulfilled and there's nothing coming for the Jewish people, then you will say that the he is Jesus. Because that's how you get away with that. You say, well, he died, okay, he took care of this problem. If you believe that there is a future for Israel, which is very clearly laid out in our sermon on Saturday, then you would say that it is the Antichrist. So that preposition or that um, uh, pronoun there is the most important pronoun in the entire Bible for understanding end times theology or what we would call eschatology, the study of end time things, okay? He is either Christ or he is the Antichrist. It's, those are the only two options that people come up with. It is not Christ, okay? It says here, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Is the new covenant in Christ's blood for seven years? No. no, it's an everlasting covenant. Okay, so you could just throw it out there right then. But what they say is that it's seven years in the middle of the seven years. He died. And so then after that, the final three and a half years takes you to Peter. And Peter went out and evangelized. And guess what? There are no dates in the New Testament for a very specific reason. It's because it is telling us that this is something that is not pertaining to Jesus. It's pertaining to the Antichrist. The end times, the dates are in Revelation. They're not back here at Jesus' time. And when I said the New Testament, I'm talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
they don't give you any specific dates. But guess what the book of Revelation does? So it's not Jesus ending the sacrifices, which he did do, by the way, for the temple. He made them ineffective, but that's not what it's talking about. It says that in the middle of the week, meaning the seven years of tribulation to come, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. That means the Antichrist, which is detailed in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's going to go in and proclaim himself God in the temple of God, right? Okay, so um, that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the cons consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Okay, so this is all speaking about the time leading up to Christ, and then you come up to Christ's crucifixion, and then you have a gap. It's 2,000 years, it's a gap, but the Jews will be back in at the end of that 2,000 years. Well, Praetorists will say, well, there's nothing in the Bible that says there's a 2,000 year gap. Actually, there is uh, Hosea chapter six, four, six, I think, or six, four. Anyway, it says, um, uh, uh, after two days, I will come to you, and on the third day, I shall raise you up two days in the Bible, a day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And so it says after two days, I will come to you. Christ is going to return to Israel. And then on the third day, I will raise you up, meaning they will be the head of the nations. So it says it there. It's You have to infer it, but it does say it. And then also they say there's no gap indicated in the Bible. Well, guess what? If you're a praetorist and you say Christ ended the sacrifices halfway, there's still a gap until you get to AD 70 when the temple is destroyed. So it doesn't matter if it's a day gap or a 40-year gap, or if it's a 2,000-year gap, a gap is a gap is a gap. There's a gap in every scenario that people have tried to come up with, and the only one that makes any sense is the one that says that God really is faithful to his covenant. Watch the sermon on Sunday and you'll see, and that his people will be restored to him. And I'm gonna defend that only from the Old Testament. You're gonna see that and you're gonna say, it's absolutely right. And then you listen to somebody else and you say, well, that sounds right too, because you get two differing opinions, people make their case and you say, now I'm confused, okay? Don't be confused. God will never break his covenant. If you remember that, everything's fine. The covenant was not made with the church, okay? He didn't make it with the church. Jeremiah 31, 31, with the house of Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. Jeremiah 30, so what? He said 6-2 of Hosea, and that's where it is. 6-2, thank you. Hosea 6-2. I knew it was in 6 or 4, and it was, in, yeah, okay, thank you. So Hosea 6-2. And then um, we'll go back now. So you see, this is, this is speaking of the Jewish people, and this is going to continue. And it's going to get more and more specific as he goes through 9 through 11 about the Jewish people. So um, Christ is the end point, purpose, and fulfillment of the law. I said it during all of those Leviticus sermons pertaining to the sacrifices and the offerings, okay? I said it every week that Hebrew says that in Christ the law is annulled, it's obsolete, and it is set aside, and then I always bring in Paul, it's nailed to the cross, okay? Christ is the beginning of the law for all who believe. No, he's the end of the law for all who believe, right? So he's the end of the law. It says at least 15 times explicitly in the New Testament. Hebrews probably says it seven or eight, and then Paul says it probably seven or eight more times. So it's got to be 15 times. But those are just a couple that are easy to remember. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. But has Israel called on Christ as a corporate body? No. And so they have seven more years granted to them. The law is still in effect for them because they have not come to him. They, as a people right now, every Jew that is alive that has not come to Christ is obligated to the law of Moses, and they must fulfill it perfectly. They have no day of atonement, and therefore they cannot have their sins atoned for. Unless they come to Christ, they are not saved, okay? That is the way it is. 
they agreed to this with their own mouths in the book of Exodus, you know, we will hear and we will obey. They are under the law of Moses, and they have seven more years to work this out now that they're established back in the land. And that is coming soon to a tribulation period near you. They will have a temple built. They will be doing sacrifices and offerings, and they will be ineffective in taking care of their sin debt because Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. But they are granted these seven years to get back in right with the Lord and to realize that he is the fulfillment of it. So you see the law is done. It's over, it's annulled, it's obsolete, but Israel still has seven years. Okay, I'm not waffling on that issue at all. That's what the Bible says. Everybody understand that? Okay, want to make sure you understand that, that they are now under punishment until those seven years start. They are back in the land by God's sovereign grace. The land is blessed just as the Bible said it would be, but the people have not yet come to Christ. Okay. After that introduction, he supported this by citing scripture directly from the law. Remember Isaiah's there, he's under the law and he's a prophet of the law, okay? To demonstrate that the law showed this, okay? Verses five through eight. Why did I say verses five through? Oh, I'm talking about what he said there. Romans 10, five through eight says, um, for Moses writes about the, I, I thought he was citing Isaiah, but Moses. For Moses writes about the righteousness of, which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Okay, so that's what he's talking about. Uh, then he cited the means of salvation, which is verses 9 through 13. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If that is the means of salvation, then guess what? There's no other way to be saved, right? That's what he's saying there, okay? So, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that's what we've been going through so far in this particular chapter. In verses 14 and 15, he took the time to explain how this message is transmitted by preaching and through the support of those who have believed. Okay, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's how the message is transmitted. But, this is now in the verse that we are in, but is contrasting reintroduction of the reason for Israel's missing the ship of salvation. If belief in Christ's work is the end of the law, which I just cited all that from Hebrews, as he clearly details here in Hebrews, he, uh, uh, here in Romans and Hebrews, everywhere he keeps showing us this, okay, it, he clearly details it, then those who don't believe have wrongly pursued salvation. What I just said to you, he's given the means of salvation. If that is the means of salvation, then any other avenue is wrong by default, okay? This is the tie back to verses one through four. Obeying the gospel is belief in the work of Christ, as he sums up in verse four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He is the end of the law. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the law is done in you. It is over, it is annulled, it is complete, it is done. When people go into these Hebrew roots move, I talked to a Jewish guy yesterday, spent a, a, quite a while on the phone with him. He's a believer in Christ, 
and uh, he's got a ministry. He's out of Northport, and he lives up north half the year. He's got a ministry, and he, uh, uh, well, I was talking about um, he was going to witness to somebody somewhere, and I, so we had a prayer about that. But I said, you know, this guy made a promise in his life that to his mother when she died that he would continue to go to synagogue and he would, um, you know, honor his commitment there. And so now he's made a promise to his mom, and I said, well, I said, he's not lying to his mom and to the, the vow he made if he goes to a Messianic synagogue. And he said, well, I'm always careful because there are Messianics and then there are Messianics. So this is a Jew that understands the freedom in Christ and the end of the law, okay? And he does not want to send anybody to one of these Hebrew roots Messianic synagogues where they reintroduce the law. As a matter of fact, he had comments about the one here in Sarasota. He says, I can't recommend people there. Okay, I attended there once or twice years ago to see what it was like, but he said, I just can't do it. Now, that's his thing. I haven't been there, so I don't know their doctrine. You know, like I said, I just went to see it. But this is a Jew that understands the grace of Christ. He is a man that understands that there is a fulfillment for the Jews in the end times, but he's very good about his theology, not mixing in the law. Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. So we need to remember that and not get into this thing where I'm going to observe this and I'm not going to eat that and I'm not going to do this and that and one thing and another. And invariably people will send me emails and they'll say, is it okay if I observe the feast of the Lord, but I'm not doing it to earn the Lord's favor? In that, I have to wonder if the church is saying to them, you should do this because it's the right thing to do. And so they feel convicted that they should do it. I always say, no, it's not as long as you're not trying to earn God's favor. But I have to question why somebody would want to observe the feasts of the Lord because you can't observe them as they're laid out anyway. You have to, if you're going to observe the feasts of the Lord, there's a lot of things that go along with observing it. You have to do a certain sacrifice. You have to do this and you have to do that. None of which you can do now. There is no Jerusalem for the people to do these things, right? There's no temple is what I'm saying. So you got to be careful to try to stick to Paul's theology for your New Testament doctrine. That is where we get our doctrine from in this dispensation. Paul, okay? But anyway, I'm not going to beat it over people's heads as long as they're truly saved and they're not trying to merit God's favor through the law. But we've got the support of those who believe. But Paul is con but here, Paul is contrasting reintroduction of the law. Okay, I said that. And now, and to show that this has been a problem of the past with Israel and a prophecy of future concerning both them and Gentiles, he now turns to question uh, the question asked by Isaiah in Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed our report? That's in the suffering servant passage. It's obviously very important because he's beginning chapter 53 with that question. Who has believed our report? And what does he talk about until the end of Isaiah 53? The suffering work of Jesus Christ. That is the intent of the entire passage. We read it on uh, Sunday during the uh, uh, Easter, uh, you know, I, I opened with it. It is speaking about his work. And Isaiah is asking, who has believed our report, right? Isaiah's question is particularly directed to the Jew who had received all of the advanced notifications of the coming Messiah. Detailed descriptions of his life and his work are found throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. We were talking about this before we started class today. We had a couple questions about Genesis 31, and so we started detailing those things. It's all about Jesus. Every single word that we went through in the book of Genesis and then into the book of Exodus, it always keeps making pictures of Christ. If the people paid attention when Jesus was walking among them, they could have said, well, gee, I read that and 
kindergarten. It was so evident when you see his life being compared to what is happening there. Anyway, um, so uh, they had all of the advanced notifications, detailed descriptions of his life and work are found all the way through the scriptures, and yet they were not believed. Those same details are now available in every library and every bookstore in the world. They are found on the internet, heard on the radio, seen on TV, and yet, who has believed our report? Who has believed it? Isaiah's question implies that what he is about to describe will be rejected. He is clear, but he will still be misunderstood. And the answer to why is found right in those same ensuing verses of Isaiah 53. He's going to detail it in those verses. Before I read any more commentary, I will say the guy I talked to yesterday, and he's done this. I, I said, you know, do, do you watch One for Israel? He says, yes, they're very good. Okay, they're a, a group that witnesses to Jews. And um, uh, I said, I don't know if it was One for Israel or another guy, but this guy went out into the streets of Israel. And I know I said this in this class before, but it's very effective. He went into the streets of Israel, speaking to them in Hebrew, because he's a Jew, right? And he just asked them a question. I want to read you something. Tell me who this is, right? And he read it to them. They all said, Jesus. They all said that's speaking about Jesus, right? And then he said, do you know where that was found? And they said, no, we have no idea. He said it's in the Old Testament, our Bible, our Hebrew scripture. So he, he gets them into a box that they can't get out of because they've already admitted that it's Christ. And then he shows them what they know is in their own scriptures, okay? And that guy said he uses that avenue too. So Isaiah 53, is it's irrefutable who it's talking about. Any Jew that has never heard it before and hears it knows that it's speaking of Jesus, right? It's the uh, passages that they never it's the, read. They're the forbidden scriptures. They are not read in synagogue because it is so obvious what it's speaking of. So Albert Barnes sums it up nicely. This is Isaiah 53. It would be because he was a root out of dry ground because he was a man of sorrows, etc., and this actually took place. Because he did not come with splendor and pomp as a temporal prince, he was rejected and put to death. That's Albert Barnes' commentary. The world looks for might, flash, glamour, wealth, and so on with their leaders. But this isn't how God entered the stream of humanity. Instead, the Creator, united with human flesh, was born in a manger, led an obscure existence until the time of his ministry, offended the leaders of the nation, he was crucified, and he was buried. <clears throat> and all of this was done without any flash, any pomp, any display of earthly power or show of wealth. This was, as far as they could see, a failure, now dead and buried. The report was given, it was detailed, and it was precise. And it should not have been missed, but it was. The gospel wasn't obeyed in his life, and it isn't obeyed in his death and resurrection. Belief in God's provision was and still is rejected for the sake of zeal without knowledge. The pursuit of pleasing God through self has taken precedence over pleasing God through Christ in both Jew and Gentile. Life application. Obeying the gospel is synonymous with belief. You can't obey the gospel unless you believe the gospel. The good news is that the work is accomplished and Christ has completed it fully and entirely. Believe and share this good news. That is what we are asked to do, is to share the good news. But first to believe. We cannot please God if we are in unbelief. 
And when somebody, I bring it up again, when somebody goes to one of these Hebrew roots denominations and starts doing these things, it is showing a lack of belief. Because just as Israel had Isaiah 53 and didn't believe it after it occurred, we have Paul. And they don't believe Paul. The, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe, that the law is an old, that the law is set aside. So we have exactly the same problem in the church that the Jews have with their own scriptures. They don't believe and they have not come to Christ. They say they believe in Christ, but it's not the Christ of the Bible because the Christ of the Bible has one gospel, one gospel. It is done and we are to believe that by faith and that is it. Any work that we do after that point is in faith and for Christ, not in faith or in hopes of pleasing Christ, okay? It is in faith for Christ. There's a big difference between the two. So we need to make sure that we don't fall into the same trap that Israel <laughs> fell into, that we don't believe the very words of Scripture. I can't tell you how many emails I get every week from people that are in this or that say, I went to a church and they said this, and I have to answer it again and again and again. And I, I show them the same verses from Hebrews every time. Do you believe this or do you not? Yes, I believe it. Well, then why are you even asking that? Because they come back and they'll ask another question. It's done. It's over. <clears throat> okay, 1017. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Oh, but, go ahead, keep going. No, no, I'm done. Oh, okay. This one's a little bit different. I thought maybe you were going to add it on. Okay. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay, so it's a little bit different, but uh, that's your Alexandrian text, and this is the Byzantine, and it's not worth arguing over because we can know which is correct by doing the study we've done in the past, okay? <laughs> but we'll just go with this. Um, verse 1017, this verse is another verse which should be committed to memory. memory. Thank you. It is simple, it is concise, and it carries with it a most important message. So then, the words so then is a summary statement. In essence, these things can be summed up as follows. For a complete perspective on this verse, it would be wise to take a moment to go back and read Romans 10, 1 through 16. I'm not going to do it. We've already gone through most of it already. By doing so, it will help in understanding this important point Paul will now state. Faith comes by hearing. Faith in this context is speaking of the properly directed faith of the gospel message. It's what I just talked about. Here's what it says. Let me take you there very quickly just so that we get this out of the way because it's on my mind and I, I didn't say it, but I'm going to say it. This is Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians are what? Jewish people? No, they're Gentiles. Galatians, okay? He says in verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace and works of Christ, right? No, it says in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. These are Jews that are going in and telling them that you have to do exactly what they're telling people today. You have to do this, you have to do that. You need to be circumcised, you can't eat pork. This is what Paul is writing to, and he uses the rest of the book of Galatians to justify this. And he uses one part of the law to make his example. What is it? It only pertains to men and it hurts. Circumcision, circumcision. okay. He uses circumcision as the benchmark. Why would he choose circumcision? It's their symbol. Because you can't be a Jew, you can't be in obedience to the law of Moses in any other precept unless you're circumcised. That's the first thing. And so he uses that as the benchmark. He says, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, Christ profits you 
Nothing. Nothing. You are a debtor to the whole law. Well, if that's true with circumcision, then every precept under circumcision carries the same weight of God's penalty, okay? Whether it's not eating pork or any of these other crazy things that these people throw at you. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. He's saying that's not even a gospel. It's not good news. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Okay? It's that serious. Paul is that serious about it. That doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. But if somebody is coming and preaching a false gospel and they're not saved, let them be accursed. He doesn't even pray for their salvation. He says, let them be accursed. The people that are being troubled in this way because he's speaking to believers and he doesn't question their salvation, but he questions their motives for going back and doing these crazy things which are fulfilled in Christ. He says, wasn't Christ portrayed to you as crucified by me? Well, then why are you going back under the law if he's fulfilled that? Okay, so now we have that as a baseline for what we're talking about. We've got, so then, faith comes by hearing. Hearing in this context is speaking of the properly directed faith of the gospel message. <coughs> Many have faith, but not all have the right faith. People hear the words of the gospel, uh, people hear the words of Buddha and have faith in those words. But this isn't the true faith which Paul speaks of, such as the case with countless misdirected belief systems which have been instituted by man. People exercise faith all the time, and they do so without considering the error of the message. I've got a friend that I eat breakfast with once a month, and he's a guy I used to work with, and he's old, and he loves to have breakfast, so I go out with him. And his wife is in something down the road. It's called Ikankar. It's a made-up religion. It's, yeah, it's just, look it up on the internet, E-C-K-A-N-K-A-R, something like that. It's called Ikankar. It's just a made-up religion, and people go there. It's like going to Scientology. It's a made-up religion. The guy says, I'm going to make up a religion because I'm tired of... He was the most published author in human history. Mm -hmm. He wrote more books than anybody else is L. Ron Hubbard, right? Mm -hmm. He got a penny a word, he said. I'm tired of working for a penny a word. He says, religion, that's where the real money is. And so he started a religion, and people flock to it. Yep. It's insane. They don't think it through. Well, same thing with over there, right? Okay, so... Um, uh, Paul speaks, uh, hear the words of Buddha, such people um, exercise misdirected belief systems which have been instituted by man. People exercise faith all the time without considering the error of the message. Even within supposed Christian denominations, error abounds. Bowing to a statue of Mary is contrary to the truthful message of God. Worshiping Jesus Christ, a created being, is contrary to the message of God. All of these things that crop up in people's theology that do not hold to this word or that add to this word are not the word of God. They are contrary to it. Even more to the point is that when the message is correct, it may not be received as such. Faith does come by hearing, but this doesn't imply that faith will come by hearing. Rather, it means that faith can only come by hearing. Many hear not all accept. This is the intent and meaning of Jesus' parable concerning the sower and the seeds back in Matthew 13. Everybody here knows that. One through nine, go read it. The correct message has been given by the sower, but it may not be received as such, or it may be misunderstood, 
or it may be understood but not sink into the heart to become heart knowledge. Thus, any accompanying confession is not a true profession. Okay, we talked about that last week. It's still true to this day. When the proper message is given, when it is received, and when it is believed, then it is the faith which Paul speaks of here. In what is one of the most egregious errors of understanding the process of exercising faith, we read this almost bizarre analysis of it from Table Talk. You know I love R.C. Sproul. Okay, he's dead now, but this is from Table Talk magazine. It's the daily devotional dated 17 September 2013. Dr. R.C. Sproul has said that the biblical doctrine of salvation can be summed up effectively in three words. Regeneration precedes faith. This is so out of line with what the Bible teaches that it is almost unimaginable to consider how it was ever introduced into the doctrine of soteriology. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. In fact, salvation can be summed up in a single sentence, one sentence, but it has nothing to do with regeneration preceding faith. It is explicitly stated in Jonah 2, verse 9, in only two Hebrew words. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Yeshua ta Yehovah. Salvation is of the Lord. Or actually, I think it says Le Yehovah. Anyway, that is it. That is it. Salvation is of the Lord. From this thought, Paul explains that this means faith in the Lord and acceptance of his provision. Faith in the Lord brings salvation. Faith in the Lord comes by hearing about the Lord. And hearing about the Lord comes by the word of God. Jonah learned this in the belly of the great fish. The very nature of the process indicates that this is a volitional act of the free will. Nothing about regeneration preceding faith. That is the most bizarre comment, and they say it again and again and again in their theology. It never says it in the Bible. It never implies it in the Bible, ever, okay? Rege uh, inserting regeneration prior to faith, as is noted in what I just read, is inserting a concept foreign to the clearly presented message in the Bible. Man must hear, and then man must respond. To be regenerated prior to faith would imply that man is saved before he is saved. Thank you. It would imply that he's saved, and then he is saved again, or something like that, and it would be universal in its scope. If not universal, then God's regenerative process would be ineffective for some. This particular teaching is taught in seminaries under the core subject, Convoluted Theology 101. If you want to know, just go take that course at your local Bible college, okay? Why do I say that um, if it's not universal, then God's regenerative process would be ineffective for some? Because Peter says that God wants all to be saved, all to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That means that God is incompetent. Because regeneration preceding faith must be universal or he is not the God of the Bible because it says elsewhere that God desires that all come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And yet this is one of the deepest thinking people I've ever listened to. I love to listen to his sermons, even though he's dead now. But how somebody can get so far off of what is obvious on the surface from the very first page where man speaks in the Bible in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, right? and it speaks of man doing something wrong, 
and he had the will to do it because God granted it to him, right? And then he got the knowledge. We need to take him, you know, he, they've eaten the knowledge uh, from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Man has become like us to know good and evil, right? From the very first pages of the Bible. If you just stick with that, you don't need to get into all this crazy stuff, but they have. Rather, for there to be a recipient of a message, there must be a source of what is relayed. Everybody got that? If you, there's a recipient hearing a message, there has to be a source of the message. The term word of God is used approximately 50 times in the Bible to describe its contents. Okay, it's said in other ways as well, but the term word of God 50 times. It is the word which issues directly from God and which is breathed out to men of God. 2 Timothy 3.16. Let me read it to you. Isn't it odd that we read that one yes, about... I was just going to say isn't that. Isn't that odd? We happen to read number three of, uh, of uh, the Chicago Statement of Faith or whatever it was. And then we... It's, it's just bizarre that we read that one today because it fits so beautifully with this. Yep. But 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's verse 17 as well. But right there, it says that uh, all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But it does not mean that all scripture applies the same right. at all times. Right. And that is an error that people start making. Well, the book of Acts, I can apply this to my doctrine. It's a descriptive book, right? The law of Moses is set aside. I will say that the books of wisdom come as close. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Job. They come as close to being universal in application of any books in the Bible. There's no time that you can say, well, that doesn't apply here. It always applies to praise God. It always applies to be want to end God's enemies. It always applies that uh, the book of Proverbs, wisdom, you know, it talks about wisdom and it talks about not going into the harlot and it talks, it's just wisdom. That's all it is. Those always apply. The Song of Solomon is this beautiful poem. I mean, it's not like it's doctrinal for any particular time. So those five books, if you read them and think about that, there is no time when you don't take them and apply them to your life in some way or another. Job, that was our uh, Easter sermon this year, right? The book of Job, chapter 19. It always applies. There's no time where that doesn't really apply, okay? But other than that, these books of the Bible have to be taken in context. Who wrote them? Who were they written to? Why were they written? What is being described? What dispensation? Etc. 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 You've got to learn what hermeneutics is, and then apply it to your reading of the Bible, or you're going to have convoluted theology. Okay. Hermeneutics is um, hermeneutics is the right application of God's word. Exactly. If dispensation is hermeneutics, if you are a dispensationalist, if you're not a dispensationalist, then you'll say, well, that's not good hermeneutics, right? So hermeneutics is how are you taking in the Bible? How are you? absorbing it and applying it okay right, right. anyway um uh okay so we have um where was i convoluted theology 101 50 times in the bible okay 2 timothy 3 16 as they were carried along by the holy spirit to peter 1 21 so we have all scriptures god breathed as they were carried along by the holy spirit they up neustos god breathed okay um so here we go um this message which jesus argued over even to a single word Remember, when he was, let me read this to you so I know what I'm talking about. John 10, 35. Let me read this to you. He argued over one single word 
in order to show that the word of God is unchanging, absolutely inviolable. Uh, John 10.35 says, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, he's arguing over one word of the Psalms. One word in order to make a point. Okay? And he also said, now this is one that people always get wrong. They say that, uh, I tell you, until all is fulfilled, not one jot or tittle will fall from the law, right? Until everything is accomplished. And they say, see, you're under the law of Moses. I have had that quoted to me 10,000 times in the past umpteen years. What's the problem with that? Who's he talking to? First, who is he talking to? But second, until all is fulfilled. Guess what he said on the cross? It is finished, right? It's saying that you are under this law in its entirety, completely and forever, until it is fulfilled. And he fulfilled it. If they don't come to him, they are under that law completely and forever and ever. Or they can come to him and it is fulfilled. We are not under the law. That is a terrible verse to apply to your theology and to say that we're under the law of Moses. It is terrible because first, he isn't talking to the Gentiles. Secondly, he's talking about fulfilling the law, not a jot or tittle falling out of the law until all is fulfilled. And then he fulfilled it. That's the whole point of the Gospels is to show us that he was the sinless son of God and he fulfilled the law. And then he initiated a new new covenant in his shed blood. Okay, there we go. So it's so simple if you just take things in context. But if you rip that verse out of context, of course it gets scary. Oh, I'm under the law. I've got to fulfill every jot and tittle. Well, guess what? You can't fulfill every jot and tittle. Have you been able to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength today? No, none of us have. We have failed. So what does that law do? Condemns. Condemns us, that's right. It condemns us. It doesn't save anything. So why would you want to go back under that law that he has fulfilled and gives salvation from? There you go. Everything in context. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, where was I? Okay, yes. Um, John 10, 35, he argue, argued over a single word. It's the complete, accurate, and fully sufficient source of bringing faith to the individual. The word of God. He argued over one word of it. It is complete, and it can bring faith to the individual. It is this word of God, which, when heard, will bring faith to the one who accepts it for what it is. Jesus explains the process in Luke 11, verse 28. Here's what he says, Luke 12, Luke 11, verse 28. He says, but he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it, or keep it in this version. They actually hear it and they do it. Okay, doesn't Ephesians one thirteen is a good one here. Oh yeah, that's the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Go ahead and read it. Well, loud. In Him, you also after you listen to the message. There you go. After you listen heard to the, the word, message, right? The gospel of your salvation, having believed them, then you're sealed with, with the Holy, Holy Spirit, Spirit, which is promise. the promise, the guarantee, the erevon, the irrevocable guarantee of God heard the message that's what you've been that's saying. right you've heard the message and you apply it to your life and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit neither Jesus here nor the Apostles later ever state ever anywhere in Scripture that we are regenerated in order to obey or believe the word it is as noted a volitional act of the free will from the first pages of the Bible to the very last as a matter of fact Let's go to the very last. I'll take you to the very last page, and we'll see if free will is in there. And if it is, then we can throw away regeneration prior to salvation. Let me see here. Um, behold, I am coming quickly. It says here, um, 
Uh, I'm sure it's here. Let's see here, Ryan. He said to do not see. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting there. Oh, yes. Verse 17. Thank you. And the spirit and the... That's the exact verse I was thinking of, too. And the spirit and the bride say... Come. come. After you're regenerated, then you can come, okay? It doesn't say that. And then let him who hears say... Come. And let him who thirsts... Come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life after being regenerated in order to believe. No, it doesn't say that, it says freely. Come freely. Okay, the very last page of the Bible confirms what we saw in the very first pages of the Bible, okay? Ooh, I feel so good reading this. It just, the word of God is so wonderful. Okay, life application. Go back, read and memorize Romans 10 verse 17, and then accept it at face value. Such simple and concise statements need nothing inserted for clarification. Read the word and then exercise your faith in that same word. Ooh, I'm so excited. My hair's standing up. It's just wonderful. Verse 10, 18. 10, 18. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. And he quotes, their voice has gone out onto all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Okay, very, very close to mine. We'll just leave it with that. Verse 10, 18. Verses 14 and 15 showed the burden of getting the message of salvation out. The transmission of the gospel and the responsibility of the messenger was highlighted. Verses 16 and 17 transitioned from the message and messenger to the receiver, the hearer. Now verse 18 places that burden on the receiver. But I say is the contrasting thought here. Have they not heard? This is a rhetorical question. The means of spreading the gospel has been explained and in fact that it was not received by the hearer was noted. Okay, but some may say, well, this isn't fair. I never heard the message. Paul contradicts such a notion. In fact, it has been sent out. Yes, indeed is Paul's declaration. In order to substantiate this, he cites the general thought of Psalm 19. Okay, Psalm 19 is a part of the five books of wisdom. Wisdom, wisdom. wisdom. Right. not Moses, right. wisdom, okay? I just cited him to you, the yep, five books of wisdom. So they're kind of universal in application. Why is that important to understand? Because Paul is citing it here, okay? Psalm 19. This psalm was penned by David. It begins with his observations about the universality of the knowledge of God, which is evident in creation. And plus, it's really beautiful, so I'm going to read it, you those first four verses. And absolutely marvelous verses. I like to cite them with the sunrise photo a couple times a year. Verse uh, Psalm 19, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows forth his handiwork. It's speaking of speech, going out and teaching us that God is there. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. In other words, everywhere on this planet, every people group, every language, every speech, every lip, every tongue, the voice has been heard. Everybody knows it. Okay, it says um, where their voice is not heard, verse 4. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Okay, that word, their line, if you go to the um, Septuagint, the Syriac, and the Vulgate, and the Targums, it says their sound. Okay, so um, that's why I say always read the footnotes, is because the footnotes will show you the differences in text. 
Here's what's important. The Septuagint predates Christ or came after Christ. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Incarnate. I'm talking about Christ when he was born. I'm talking about, yes, his incarnation. It predates it by a couple hundred years. The Syriac is the Syriac version of the Old Testament. And then you have the Vulgate. The Vulgate is the Latin translation of the scriptures. Does that come before or after Christ's incarnation? After, but guess what? It's translated from original Hebrew texts, which come before the Masoretic text. So I would be inclined to go with the word sound instead of line, okay? Simply because the Masoretic text says line, but that the earliest Masoretic text is about 1034 AD, okay? So we've got several things that say sound, one that says line, maybe a couple others that say line, but that's why we think these things through. And we go, I don't know what the Dead Sea Scroll says. They don't cite it here. My guess is it says sound, but I don't know. They may not have that part of that particular psalm in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anyway, uh, there are these differences, but if you get a numerous amount of words in ancient texts, which were translated long before the Masoretic text, and only the Masoretic text says this, you can bet that the Masoretic text is probably not correct. We've talked about that with Psalm 22. You know, instead of my hands and my feet, um, they pierce my hands and my feet. It says in the Masoretic text, like a lion, my hands and my feet. It doesn't make any sense, but they've changed it to hide Christ, right? They've done that in several other places. We go back and we have all of these other ancient witnesses that show this, and then we have one that says this, I would go with them, right? Because they predate Christ or they're written at the time of Christ or a little bit afterward, but they come from texts which were about the time of Christ. So think that one through, but always read your footnotes. You will be far better off than reading commentaries. Okay, um, let's see here. We're in 1018. Um, uh, is that what we're in? Yes, 1018, verses 14. It's, oh, the transition to the receiver. Verse 18 places that burden on the receiver. And then uh, we cited Psalm 19. The psalm penned by David begins with his observations about the universality of the knowledge of God, which is evident in creation. I put Psalm 119, but it's actually Psalm 19. Um, so if David, a man born and raised as a shepherd who had absolutely no theological training at all, could discern these things, then no one else could claim otherwise. Now think that through. He was not a Pharisee. He wasn't somebody trained in the scriptures. He was what? Sure. He was a shepherd boy, right? And then from immediately going from a shepherd boy, he turned into a warrior, right? Because he was called up there to give bread and food to his brothers. And while he's up there, he started asking, well, who's challenging him, right? So he went immediately from being a shepherd boy in Bethlehem to being a warrior, taking on Goliath. And from that point on, he was a warrior the rest of his life. And yet he wrote the 19th Psalm and all of these other Psalms, which have very deep theology. Therefore, we are without excuse when we don't understand that there's a God when we look up in the heavens. That's what the point of this is, right? No theological training at all. That means that every one of us has the same information that he had, and yet he wrote scripture simply by sitting there and thinking about the glory of God that he knew existed. He was just one of these guys. That's why when it says 400 years after he's dead, yet for the sake of Jerusalem or for the sake of my servant David, I will not destroy Jerusalem. 400 years later, he's a man after God's own heart because he appreciated the things of God by thinking them through instead of going to a seminary and being taught wrong doctrine. You know, we have the word of God. We're without any excuse at all. If people out there are without excuse, how much more are we? Read your Bible. Okay, so. Good training. 
Charlie, out there under the out stars. Out there under the stars. I mean, Paul, at, Paul went out there in the desert. Yes, he did. David was out there under those stars. He was out under the stars, and that's the best of training. The Holy Spirit was teaching him. That's right. <laughs> His thoughts thus substantiate that all have heard the voice of God. All have God's general revelation clearly presented to them. This knowledge is sufficient for man to know that God exists and thus man is responsible to him. Now I brought up Aristotle in the past and I'll bring him up again right now. Aristotle came this close to understanding in his writings the nature of God as we know it, as we know it. He was missing what is called specific or special revelation to get him that one little step further. But this is a guy, Aristotle figured out that the earth is round 2,000 years ago, and we got people that can't figure that out today, right, right? right? I mean, it's it's unbelievable. All you need to do is just look at the world around you, and you can see how God constructed things and how they work, okay? Read his writings on how he knows the earth is round, and then go do it yourself, and you can determine if he was right or not. You don't need to read some conspiracy thing on the internet and find out, oh, the earth is flat, and I'm being lied to, right? It, 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 that's crazy. Anyway, um... <laughs> Whatever, I'm not gonna get off on that tangent, but Aristotle wrote about God being pure act. He has no parts, there's no, there's no substance to him. He knew that. This is things that most people today don't know. They think they're gonna go up and stand before God and see God standing there and saying, you know, it's not gonna happen. God is spirit. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God that we have to help us understand the unseen God. He says it himself in the book of Revelation shows us that very perfectly as does all of the prophets of old, right? Now, let, me, let me explain this to you. I was talking to somebody about this and I think it's coming up in a sermon. I think it's coming up in a sermon, but I will read this to you now just so we can get, every once in a while it's good to talk about the nature of God. We're talking about how we can know there's a God. Well, let's go to, really quickly to the book of James. And um, let me see here, James, I think it's three or four. It's gonna take me a second to, uh, to find this. I think it's coming up in a sermon. I'll talk about it so you're gonna hear it again. But um, uh, he talks about in God there is no um, change, no shadow of turning. Where is that? Um, uh, give me just a second here. Um, then you're going to get Romans what, 19. Well, I'm 22. going to get that later. We're going to get this now. Don't get me off on a tangent. I want to get this for you. Um, help me to find it. Look for the word shadow in the book of James, and when you find it, yell out, because we're all looking at it, and um, uh, I don't want to spend all day looking for this, but I want to explain this to you so that you understand what it means. One lawgiver, um, life, and establish your, don't grumble, judgment, uh, church, each earnest brethren. It's in the book of James. It's probably in three, but... Um, your variation, where 17, are you? 117. 117. I'm looking at chapter 3. That would never get us there. Okay, thank you. James 117. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. This is God, the Father, right? With whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Okay, no variation, no shadow of turning. The word in Greek is paralege. Okay, it's where we get the word. Does anybody know what a parallax is? Parallax. Okay, let's do this really quickly, just so we understand. God doesn't have parts in any way, shape, or form. This only take a second. What? A parallax. Okay, you can get a parallax through a camera. You can get it. Is it geometry? Yes, it has to do with geometry. You got a star up here, and we're on the Earth, which is round, by the way. And I'm standing here, and this guy's standing here, and I look at the star, and I see differently than he sees the star here. Now, it doesn't matter if somebody is standing this close to me. I mean, he's right next door. And when he looks at that star, he's going to have a parallax of that view. 
No two people are going to see it unless they're in exactly the same eyeballs, right? Okay, or you have a camera which is shining out this way and you look in the lens thing here, this is um, the camera, this is the front, and this is the, you know, your, the body of the camera. Okay, and you get that little thing up on top. And you look through here, and it's looking through here, and when you take the picture, the feet are cut off, right? right. That's a parallax, oh you got something. Oh, okay. A parallax is anytime there's a variation in what you see. Now, okay, so you got, you understand, it's, it's a variation. A, a parallax is a variation, so. And you can get it different ways. Go look it up on the internet and study it, and you'll understand better what a parallax is. But. He uses a word that's used only one time in the entire Bible because he has to describe God and how do I describe him so that I don't make a mistake. He uses this word. There's no variation, no shadow of turning. Okay, if I have, this is substance, okay? And every single person here is looking at that atom. There's one hydrogen atom inside, you know, going around, right? It's hydrogen, so there's the, the electron, and then the uh, uh, neutron, electron, and proton. proton, thank you, you've got, there's only one. It doesn't matter where you are looking at, or we could make the arrows come out like this, right? Or on the other side, there is a variation in that one atom. There's a variation. No two people will ever see that atom the same. No two people ever. In all of human history, they will never see this, no matter which way you're looking at it, you will never see that the same. An atom is the simplest, the hydrogen atom, it's this simple little thing. And it doesn't matter if you take the proton itself, you've still got the same problem. In other words, there is absolutely no parts to God at all. And Aristotle figured that out. He figured out that God is what he called pure act or actuality. There's no potential in him. If you have a dot here, doesn't matter how small it is, it doesn't matter how perfect it is, you're still looking at, it's a perfect ball of gold, right? It's gold. You're looking at one side or another, another or another, you're, there's always a variation, a shadow of turning, a parallax from where you're looking, always, okay? Aristotle figured this out. It doesn't matter, I'll get it. Um, it he figured this out. He was able to understand that God has no parts. None at all, and yet he is God. There is a creator. I don't know what he called him as a God or whatever, whatever term he is, but there is a creator out there that is absolutely simple in his being. That doesn't mean in his mind. It means in his being, he is perfectly simple. There is no change in this being. There is no development in this being. There is no potential in this being. Zero. If there is, then it is not the God of the Bible. We will never see God the Father. I say this to people and I get angry emails sometimes. You will never see him because he is perfectly simple in his being. We can never see God the Father. He is God. That's why he incarnated into the stream of humanity was to show us his glory in a way that we could understand. And forever and forever and forever, he will ceaselessly and endlessly reveal the glory of God the Father to us because we cannot see what is perfectly simple. No matter how long we wait, no matter how hard we try, this infinite being which is everywhere. There's another one. We're looking at a dot. Look out. Yeah. God is omnipresent everywhere. It doesn't matter where we look. It doesn't matter inside of what atom we look. It doesn't matter how far out in the universe we look. He is everywhere. We are not seeing God now, and we're looking everywhere. We're seeing stuff that God has made, how he has presented himself in creation, but we are not seeing God. 
and we never will. If people can understand that, then they will have a much better comprehension of the importance of Jesus Christ in our lives. He is the revelation of God for us. He is that. And that's why it says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your, you can't fix your thoughts on something you cannot see. All he has done is given us the creation so that we can determine what he is like. But we can't see him, so we can't fix our thoughts on him. He's beyond our thoughts. We would forever be seeking what we can't understand. That's why Jesus Christ is so important, okay? Very important precept there, James 1, 17. I'm going to try to remember it's in chapter 1 next time. Sorry for wasting your time. But um, so uh, the uh, uh, general statement about the we're still, oh, um, this knowledge is sufficient for man to know that God exists and that thus man is responsible to him. But instead of pursuing him, acknowledging him, and rightly honoring him, they seek out their own devices. This then is tied into Paul's thoughts in Romans 1, 18 through 21. Man is without excuse, no excuse at all. Okay, we got time, I'll, I'll take you there. Romans 1, 18 through 21. We've already done Romans 1, but for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God, David writing the 19th Psalm, is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, God is invisible, you can't see him, you will never see him, he is invisible, he is everywhere at all times. If you could see God, you would be infinite, all right? You would have all of the infinite knowledge and thus you would be God, thank you, so you're not, okay? Four, since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, because although they knew God, David knew him, we all know him. They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, with the gospel proclaimed, there is an even greater burden on the people to believe. And so Paul equates David's knowledge of general revelation, the heavens declare the glory of God, to the now provided and superior knowledge of the gospel, God's specific revelation. We've gone from the general, the heavens declare the glory of God, to the specific, God has declared his glory in Jesus Christ. He's gone from general to specific, okay? By citing the psalm in this way, he's making a wide-ranging statement about the gospel's transmission. This doesn't mean every person had heard the gospel, but that the message had gone out to the inhabited world. This is the same thought and the same word for world, which is used as the statement in Acts 17, verse 6, which says, Acts 17, verse 6 says, but when they did not find them, they dread. Oh, that's not what I want at all. I, oh, I said, what did I say? 17 verse 6. I must have meant something like 7 verse 6. I don't know. Anyway, he, the word has gone out to the whole world. Um, hang on a second here. I do this from time to time. My fat fingers will pick something wrong when I'm doing my research. And uh, let me see, 7 6. Um, no, that's definitely not it. Maybe it's 16.6 or 18.6. I'm not going to worry about it now. Or it could be 16.7 because I have dyslexia. <laughs> okay. Anyway. That's in Psalm 19, too. Well, yes, but I'm talking about the New Testament. Acts. There's a, he uses word. the same concept. Uh, world. 
Anyway, um, if you find it great, that's um, uh, uh, it's the same word for world which is used here in the book of Acts. What's that? There's a couple more verses that you could use. Okay. It's John 1 9. Oh, yes. And also, uh, I think Titus 2 11. As far as world, you mean? As far as people should have knowledge. Oh, absolutely. John 1 9. Let me see that one real quick here. But the word world is what I'm focusing on, and I wish I would Fine. do these things. Let me go to John 1 9 real quickly here. Uh, John 1 9 says, uh, uh, oh, yeah, that the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Okay, so there you go. The light which gives true light to every man. We, we know that there is a God out there. We know we're in darkness. Anyway, um, so Acts 17, 6, that really bothers me that I uh, got that wrong. Sorry about that. Anyway, and so this sound, the gospel message which Paul is writing about, and if you find it, just let me know, has gone out to all the earth. The word sound is pathogos. It's kind of a hard word to say. P-H-T-H-O-G-G-O-S, pathogos. Okay, it is used for a musical tone, like when an instrument plays or a voice sings. The gospel is this beautiful voice. The earth is speaking of the physical earth. This voice has been transmitted on the planet and their words to the ends of the world. I wonder why. I put it again, Acts 17, 6. Let me read the whole yeah, verse. I have, because I have 17, um, I wrote four, it. God made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made of hands. Nor That's not the verse I'm looking for, no. though. That's definitely not the verse I'm looking for. It, it, it's speaking about the message of going out to the world. The whole world has heard the message. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's that's what he says, and I just wanted to cite it to you, but it says it in the book of Acts. The whole world has gone out. The whole world has heard this. Yeah, it's not. These men no, I've already read that. It's, it's not 17.6. It's not, <laughs> I, I, I wrote it down wrong, so anyway, don't worry about it. It's the, the thought counts, okay? The word has gone out to the whole world. So it's definitely not 17.6. Um, could be 17.16. Does anybody want to check that? <laughs> no, okay. It's not 17.16. Okay. I, I just, I have this problem with dyslexia when I'm looking at numbers and I always do this. So I apologize. Anyway, um, uh, where are we? Um, uh, Pythagoras. Okay. Musical tone. I said that the word for words here in this verse, the word for words is remata. This signifies the matter which is being relayed. This subject, the gospel, is what has gone out to the ends of the world. The world here being the inhabited world as noted. 17.6. Read it. Maybe I'm in, I, I might have been on the wrong page. He says these men have upset the world. Oh, so it is that one. Who was reading that a second ago? Cindy. Oh, Cindy. Okay, see? All right. I don't know why I didn't. Jason is... Yeah. Upset the world. Oh, I see. I was reading 177. Oh. I was looking right here at 17. That's why that's my problem with numbers. My eyes pick them up and I, I'm very bad with numbers. So it is 17.6. I was correct in that. The whole world, these people have upset the whole world. That is what I was looking for. I'm reading 17.7. I apologize. Okay. Anyway, go back and read 17.6 and memorize it because that's uh Something you don't want me to try to <laughs> tell you about ever again. Okay, so um, let's see here. The word ramata, it signifies the matter which is being relayed. The subject is the gospel is what has gone out to the ends of the world. 17.6 Acts, okay? In other words, by using different words in this verse for earth and world, Paul is making a great point here, okay? Paul demonstrates that the message has been carried over the physical earth and has been relayed to the inhabitants of the earth. 
it's not just the people of the world, it's that it has gone out over the world to all of the people of the world. That's what Paul is telling us, okay? So, it's obvious that even today, many have not actually heard, but the gospel is being transmitted actively and continuously. Those who have heard should have accepted the message. If they did, then the next obvious step would be to pass it on. If they didn't, then they have disobeyed the gospel. First, by not believing, and then by not passing it on, because they didn't believe. This goes right back to verse 16. They have not all obeyed the gospel. The gospel is a two-pronged thing. It's one, receiving what Jesus Christ has done, and then passing it on to others, okay? If you don't do it, you haven't obeyed. Life application. Oh, we're going to finish up with this one. Um, I don't think we can get another one in. No, we can't. Okay. Life application. All people have heard God's word through general revelation. Everybody. David said that. Paul explains it in this verse. This is plainly declared in scripture. And the message of God's special revelation, the gospel. Actually, special revelation is the words of the prophets. It is the written word of God, and it is the incarnation of Jesus Christ who is the word of God. Okay, that is special revelation. Special revelation is God actively doing something in creation so that we will understand his intent for us. Okay, you've got general revelation. God has done this thing. We are to understand God in a limited way from there, and then we have special revelation. God has now specially revealed something so that we can appreciate him in a way we could not otherwise appreciate, okay? So the gospel has gone out, and it continues to go out through the world and to the people of the world. But it is incumbent on the people to obey the gospel by believing what is heard. If one believes the message, then he will obey Jesus' words to share the good news. The question is, even if you have obeyed by believing, even if you've obeyed by believing, have you obeyed by sharing? That's the question. It is time to demonstrate your belief through getting the message out. And we talked about this last week. Not everybody is an evangelist. Not everybody is really capable of getting it out of them. Everybody should be. Eventually, if you do anything enough, I don't care what it is, you will learn how to do it. Okay? But if you're just one of those people that says, I, I just, I can't do it. I freeze up. I, I can't do it. Then what do you do? You make sure that you help. Send somebody else. Yes, send somebody else. All right? You've got a church or a missionary or somebody that you're helping out with it. Because in the end, it is your obligation not only to hear and believe the gospel, but it is your obligation, according to Paul, to get the message out, to share the message. And most of us will, at some point in our life, share the message. It may be with our person just simply being a witness without saying a word. You know, finally they come up and they say, why are you always so content? <clears throat> because I love Jesus, right? That right there is sharing the gospel with your own actions, okay? It may be with your mouth. It may be with slipping tracks under the, the menu at, at IHOP, whatever. There's always a way that you can share the gospel. And as you as I said, you know, it's hard the first time you talk to somebody about Jesus and you're tongue twisting, you think, oh, I, I just did a terrible job. Well, Tom knows he's been out in the projects now for almost 11 full years every Saturday. And he's seen people that come out that never prayed before and they don't say a word. And the first time they pray, they're all over their tongues, aren't they? And after three weeks or four weeks of going out there, 
they're professional prayer people. Yeah. Everything just takes a little bit of effort, and pretty soon it comes out naturally. And then you start saying, I like doing that, and I want to do more of it, right? right. So that's where we're but at with that. I should also say, for anybody here in the room or anyone who comes to church here, uh, a, a few Saturdays at mission work would be a great testing ground. A great testing ground for your ability to witness, to pray for other people, yes. I want to know what you did with those beautiful feet last week since I wasn't here. Oh, the, uh, preaching the gospel. you didn't watch online? Well, you shouldn't be in this class now unless you watched last week's online. I'm sorry. you got to brush up. You're in trouble. Anyway, yes, I held up my feet and let everybody see the callus. No, I didn't. Anyway, um, before we close, there is a thing that's being sent around. Everybody in here, before you leave, please sign it. I need as many signatures as possible before you leave. I don't know. It's somewhere here. And then after it's signed, I need that back today. Okay, so please make sure you sign that before you go. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer, and we're going to Can close. Can we go to Democratic signatures on there? No, we can't. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the chance to come to you in prayer, to thank you for this precious word, to thank you for the wonderful word that you've given us. And uh, even through my inability to see Acts 17.6, I pray that everybody here got at least something out of today's uh, discussion about your nature, about your revelation, about your gospel message, and about our responsibility to it. And once again, Lord, I would pray that each person here would go home and would think about what they heard, compare it with Scripture itself, and to come to the conclusion that is right and sound, not just because I said it, but because your word either confirms it or says otherwise. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus our Lord and what he did for us. And so in his name, we close this service praising you. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me back this thing up and say goodbye what to the folks online. You have to do the uh, characteristics of God. Yes. All right, we can do that. We can do that. Break. Okay, let me put this baby back on. Okay, almost. There we go. Okay, everybody have a wonderful night. We love you guys very much. We we'll hope to see you Sunday. The what? It's it's back there somewhere, but I need to get that back tonight. I can't let it. Uh, not to be there on Saturday. You're not going to be there on Saturday, okay? Okay, good. Thank you. And I. Uh, oh, good. Okay. No Saturday for you. Well, that's unacceptable. Oh my goodness. Yes. All right. I'm going to leave this. No, I'm going to take that home. I'm going to take that home. Okay. <laughs> 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 <laughs>